On this edition of the Iowa Business Report. We can't do it without farmers, and if they're not willing or able to participate in the program, we're not going to be successful. A major grant to be administered by an Iowa group designed to provide incentives to agribusiness producers. We'll have details. The corporate tax rate drops thanks to Iowa's budget surplus. And in our business profile, we'll hear from a nursery owner whose specialty plants are very popular this time of year. This is the Iowa Business Report for the first weekend of October 2022. The Iowa Business Report is a copyrighted production of Totally Iowa Media, which is solely responsible for its content. For more, click on the radio programs button at totallyiowa.com. Here is Jeff Stein. The Iowa Soybean Association has been awarded nearly $100 million for creation of the Midwest Climate Smart Commodity Program. The money came from the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Partnerships for Climate Smart Commodities and will be administered by the Soil and Water Outcomes Fund, launched in 2020. Adam Keel is Managing Director of the Soil and Water Outcomes Fund. The grant that we received from the USDA for the Climate Smart Commodities Partnership Program will be used to support farmers in Iowa and 11 other Midwestern states in adopting additional conservation practices on their farms that produce environmental benefits like greenhouse gas emission reductions on the farm or water quality improvements. We really look forward to working with farmers across those 12 states to implement additional conservation that produces environmental benefits that benefit us all. Am I right in assuming that you've got people who are willing to adopt measures necessary, but they just needed the incentive or they need to have some support to be, if you will, the pilot project or the uh, mentoring project for others to follow? Yeah, my opinion is that there's been a lot of efforts over the past number of years, you can go back quite a long while, where we've put a little effort into helping farmers and landowners get a feel for what conservation practices look like, but there's not been a whole lot of effort around scaling those practices to a wide number of acres across a wide geography. So what I really look forward to here is testing out farmers' willingness, landowners' willingness to go to scale on some of these ideas that have been around for a while, but just haven't had the support or technical support necessary to go to scale for these ideas that have been around for a while. Now, a dozen states thereabouts, do those states have some commonalities? In other words, they're all geographically contiguous, or is it a matter of we have a few states in this part of the country, a few in this other part of the country, again, to kind of try different things and establish best practices for a specific region? The 12 states that we're targeting are all what I'd call Midwestern states, so they kind of have that commonality. Similar type cropping systems, although we go from North Dakota all the way over to Ohio and down to Kansas and up to Michigan, so cover a wide area. I'm a Midwesterner, happy to work with other Midwesterners. So yeah, just look forward to those 12 states and expanding this concept that was born in Iowa to other areas of the Midwest. Now, as you said, this concept was born in Iowa. You had some success here. What kind of a track record was necessary in order to get the Fed's attention to where they would commit to this level? Yeah, we started this project or this effort, I guess I'd call it, uh, about three years ago, working just uh, south of the Waterloo-Cedar Falls area, actually, on a pilot project where we worked with about 10,000 acres of land and 
the farmers that farm that land on an outcomes-based contract. So farmers did things on their farms that produced positive environmental results, and we measured and monitored those results and structured a contract around those results. That concept is totally foreign to conservation specialists across the country, and we piloted that, like I said, three years ago. Since then, we've been scaling up. Now we're up to close to 100,000 acres in in Iowa, a lot of that in the area of your listeners. So that's uh, really a testament to Iowa farmers and their willingness to do things. And we were able to demonstrate success to USDA. And I guess we demonstrated enough success to get this award to the tune of $95 million to scale up. So really some innovation that is occurring in Iowa in terms of conservation and the way we look at delivering conservation and really a focus on those environmental outcomes that are produced. It's been my impression as a lifelong Iowan that we don't have to worry about those who work the land in terms of being concerned about these things. Those folks know how important the land is to the survival of all of us. But it's a matter of getting the rest of the world to kind of understand what it is we need to do and how it can all work together. And you mentioned some of this was a foreign concept. What's been the holdup or what roadblocks do you often encounter when you're talking about these types of projects or this topic in general? The way that governments have chosen to work with farmers is to provide incentives or cost share. And that's the way it has been for some time when it deals with on-farm conservation practices. This concept that we're really deploying here hasn't had this level of financial support ever. And we can look at a couple different things in the current administration that support that. One of these is the Climate Smart Partnerships, which is where that $95 million came from. That was part of a larger $3.5 billion effort across the U.S. to work with agriculture and produce climate-related environmental outcomes. So that kind of funding support has just never been around for the type of scale and projects that were funded. We're lucky enough to be one of 70 projects nationwide and one of the larger ones, which again, we're very excited about. Look forward to working with Iowa farmers. So funding is kind of one thing, but also, you know, we need to talk with more farmers. We need to get farmers coming in the door, talking to us. We can't do it without farmers. And if they're not willing or able to participate in the program, we're not going to be successful. So we need kind of both sides here to be willing to participate, one on the funding side and the other on the farmer side. And I want to ask about the goals and objectives of a five-year project, but You gave me the perfect opportunity to ask, how can farmers get involved? If someone's listening to this conversation and they say, this is something I really want to get involved with, what's the best way for them to do that? The grant was just announced recently, so we've got some work yet to do with USDA, but we're targeting 2023, early 2023, as a time when farmers can start enrolling. We'll be sure to get news out when that enrollment opportunity opens. But if you want to learn more right now, you can go to the website, www.theoutcomesfund.com. That'll give you some background on the opportunity. And also when enrollment opens, that's where we'll be announcing enrollment and having farmers come and create an account and sign up. And as you said, it's not a secret. You're going to be letting everybody know when it's time. But theoutcomesfund.com, and I'm looking at it right now, tells you all about various projects. It's a five-year project. Obviously, you have certain goals, objectives, etc. What do you hope that if we're talking in five years, what do you hope that this will have accomplished and what will it set the table for then potentially? Obviously, what we're trying to do over the five years is really try to improve the environmental footprint of agriculture. 
we want to have a more sustainable soybean, a more sustainably grown corn. That's front and center, is producing environmental benefits that are tangible and real. If we don't do that, we're not succeeding. So we need to ensure that we're getting farmers in the door, doing things to produce a more sustainable crop that could be reducing their tillage operations. It could be adding a cover crop. Different things like that are all things that we can do. And at the end of five years, you know, hopefully we're looking at not just five years of work, but keeping this momentum going for climate smart type conservation farming long into the future. It can't just be a flash in the pan five years. That'll be a failure as well. So we can't put up the mission accomplished banner after five years. We got to keep this going much longer than that. Well, it may be accomplished to that point, but that's just the foundation, right? I mean, then Correct. that's where, yep. where things build from there. Yep. Do you find, lastly, that there is, and I already suggested that producers are by and large on board, do you find there is more willingness of people cross-platform to have this conversation than might have been the case five or ten years ago? Yeah, I can speak to our program, specifically Iowa farmers. Currently, we've got a about a 100,000-acre limit in Iowa, as I mentioned. We've had no trouble meeting that. That's not a big goal in Iowa, but we haven't done a lot of promotion or advertising either, and we don't have trouble getting farmers coming in the door. So I think that's, again, a, a testament to Iowa farmers. We hope to keep that going. Other areas where we've worked hasn't been as easy, but we're making traction in, in new areas as well, like Illinois and Missouri and Minnesota. So if I speak about Iowa farmers, you know, I think that they're progressive and want to be a part of programs like this. And we look forward to getting more and more farmers enrolled. So we've got the funding to scale up to about 4 million acres, 4.2 million acres to be exact. And I'd love for a big portion of that to be in Iowa, but it's going to be up to Iowa farmers to choose to participate. Really, this is a different way of looking at conservation. It's funding farmers and paying them for the outcomes that they produce rather than paying an incentive or a cost share. It's just like producing a bushel of soybeans. The more you produce, the more potential revenue there is. And we want farmers to think about that and think about ways that they can maximize the production of environmental outcomes now, just like they think about their commodity crop. Adam Keel, Managing Director of the Soil and Water Outcomes Fund. We spoke via Zoom on Monday, September 19th. Again, for more information about this multi-state effort, go to theoutcomesfund.com. Still to come, lower tax rates and a family business focusing on native plants. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. With the return of college football, don't miss the cover story in the September-October issue of Iowa History Journal, about gridiron legends Jack Trice and Duke Slater. Also, read how tent shows reign supreme, how a Waterloo business helped make donuts popular, and how an Iowan walked across the state and earned a seat in the Senate. Get your copy of Iowa History Journal at Barnes & Noble, Walmart, Hy-Vee, Fairway, and iowahistoryjournal.com. Support for the Iowa Business Report comes from the Iowa Business Council, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization working to elevate Iowa's economy through leadership, research, and advocacy. Learn more and get details on their upcoming quarterly report by going to iowabusinesscouncil.org. This past week, the governor announced that the state of Iowa will end fiscal year 2022 with a balance of $1.9 billion in the general fund, another $830 million in reserve funds, 
and $1.06 billion in the Taxpayer Relief Fund. Legislation signed by the governor earlier this year means a drop in state corporate tax rates. The new law included a formula for reducing the corporate tax rate when net corporate income tax receipts exceeded $700 million. For the fiscal year just completed, those receipts actually totaled $850 million, well above the trigger point. That means the top corporate tax rate drops from 9.8% to 8.4%, and it reduces the number of corporate tax rates from 3 to 2. That's something that was not projected to happen for at least another five years. The current year's budget surplus, $1.9 billion, exceeded the previous year's budget surplus, which was only $1.24 billion. Now, all this is in addition to future tax rate relief for individuals and businesses. That was enacted during the past legislative session as well. Coming up, it's a good time to plant if you know what you're doing. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. The Iowa Secretary of State wants you to get voter ready. The first step is registering to vote. You can do this online, through the mail, or at the polls on Election Day. Second, choose if you want to vote absentee or at the polls. You must request a mailed absentee ballot by 5 p.m. October 24th. Get more information and download your absentee ballot request form at voterready.iowa.gov. Tuesday, November 8th is Election Day. Polls will be open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. Remember to bring your ID. The Iowa Business Report is presented by Advance Iowa, educating, guiding, advising, and coaching Iowa businesses. Search for Advance Iowa on LinkedIn and Facebook and get more at AdvanceIowa.com. In our business profile, you'll hear from Bob Wubin of Blooming Prairie Nursery, which has been based in Carlisle for a quarter of a century now. Their unique focus has led to development of a niche market, natural landscaping systems. Uh, well, like everybody else, is a cliche maybe, but uh, we started in our garage in Fort City, Iowa. It's a three-car garage, but it was one stall was converted, so it was uh, one stall was mine for my growing my plants. And I started with grow lights, and we started that. I, what got my interest peaked was I was a roadside coordinator for the Iowa DOT. We were using natives to control our noxious weed problems in our road ditches. Integrated roadside vegetation management. We got to go to uh, monthly meetings and. A lot of intensive training about using natives in our right-of-way. 25 years ago, I never dreamed that it would the market would explode the way it has. You know, now there's a huge paradigm shift in our whole ecosystem and our groundwater and everything is involved has now come to focus because we're in the shape we are. You know, so having the, the natives is the, the biggest, I would say, the biggest advantage of what we're trying to do because insects need the native plants to basically, if there's a host plant, they use them for food, they use them for nectar. The pollinator bees need them. All the insects, everything evolves around plants. And as we've grown, we've gotten away from that. We've used cultivars and other things that are not native. A cultivar is they've taken a native plant and they've changed it somehow with genetically. The problem with that is, is that the insects don't recognize it as a host plant no more. So our ecosystem has been crashing. A classic example is the monarch butterfly. That is on everybody's top of mind right now. 
they're a whole specialist to just the milkweed plants. With our technologies, with everything improving, the herbicides, we're able to pretty much wipe that out. It, it's kind of a pyramid thing that the, the uh, monarchs are on top, but all of our other, other insects have been dying also. So over 90% of our insects are specialists to some certain plant, and meaning that they have developed a, a way to overcome the plant's defenses. So like the milkweed has got the milkweed, it has the, the, the milk in it, and the monarchs have been able to overcome that defense in their, and they can use that as a host plant. This is one of the, the beauties of being in business for 25 years. We didn't really see this happening as well as it did because we were focusing mainly on seed production is what we were doing. As the, the, the plant, people wanting to come to the nursery and, and are buying the farm down here in Carlisle. Uh, we've expanded where we were able to do so. We were able to have people come down and visit, and it just took off from there. Then having specializing in just native plants was our other niche that has really, you know, now it it's, gives us that better appeal for the 25 years. I mean, you know, what have we been doing for the last 25 years? And, and we've evolved from where we our original idea was to where we are now. One of the things we heavily promote is diversity. So if you can plant some native flowers, some shrubs, and some trees. And some of the cultivars that have taken over with the flowers, the purple cone flower is a native is a native by itself at Echinacea, and the Magnus cone flower is a cultivar of that. And so that's for the flowers. And in the shrubs, Airwood viburnum is a native shrub. It's a spring, early spring bloomer, blooms a white, has a beautiful fall color, but it's also a host plant to several hundred insects. Plus, the birds are able to eat the berries. It's a fall-producing berry shrub. And then the trees, we have one of the keystone species, they say, that would be the oaks. So the queerest family, the oaks, the red oaks, the white oaks, the black oaks, and uh, their host plant to over 450 different insects. Okay, so let me back up with the, with the airwood viburnums. Its counterpart that we're, we're hearing a lot of that we can plant as a cultivar would be the butterfly bush. And, they, and it's been sold that, yes, it's a good nectar plant. It's a, you know, it attracts a lot of butterflies. It does do this. But from an ecological standpoint, it has no host plant availability to any insects. So its ecological value is zero. Same thing with, okay, now then with the trees. The oaks, our red oaks, white oaks, now there's a new cultivar out called the heritage oak. Same problem with that. The insects don't recognize it as a host plant or anything. So it's a very little value to us. When we're at the point we are in our ecological system right now in such a low, we need to be able to plant stuff that will help bring our, bring our ecosystem back. So this is the biggest push we're trying to do. This is our other huge issue that, that we have been working on over the last you know, the last 25 years, we've built, and we call it the Blooming Prairie Advantage. It's been our research and development, what we've put into how to make a planting. Once I do a planting for somebody or they buy my plants, how do I make that plant sustainable? And that's been our biggest concern because I haven't been able to do in our own prairie that we planted. My prairie was going through, after about five years, it was going through, it was reverting back to a tall grass prairie, even though we had put over 50 varieties of Forbes into our prairie. And... If I can't grow it, how do I sell it to somebody else? So that's been our big focus point on building our brand. Well, so we've called it the Blooming Prairie Advantage, and it's our natural soil enhancement products. And why we've derived from this problem is we've done numerous soil tests on all of our different test plots and all of our different plant production areas. And 
there's a lot of things that we found in our soil. Our organic matter was, most of it was less than 1%. Pre-plow era, we had 10% organic matter in our soils. And it was teeming with microbes and the whole soil was healthy. There was nutrients available to the plants whenever they needed it because the soil was so healthy. It was a constant nutrient recycling program going on in our, in our prairies. Since we've been farming this for the last 200 years in the industrial age and we've homeowners and everybody, everybody has moved the land around and we have lost through erosion and wind erosion all of our topsoil. We have no organic matter in our soil. We have no topsoil left. That's why this is so important now when we plant the plants that we use our soil builder plus it's our worm castings and char and compost and we will have a new i just sent in a new sample for for test results and i'm working with Artie in uh, prairie city and they have the char they build char this is probably the biggest breakthrough that we've had is 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 using all these products together and it's exciting where the future is headed for us and and this is what we're we're hoping that uh People will understand that that uh, our soils are so depleted, and we have to help them out. We can't just plant plants and expect it to recover. It just isn't it isn't working. The beauty of it being fall is a great time to plant plants because they get a chance to. They won't necessarily root in 100% this fall, but they're there to catch maybe a fall rain, and then they get the spring rains. So they're already there. They're a start, and it gives people one last attempt to get things finished up before winter. Everybody wants to finish that. One more project before winter gets here. Bob Wubin of Blooming Prairie Nursery in Carlisle, online at bloomingprairieiowa.com. Thanks to Tim Harwood of IBR affiliate KXEL for sharing that conversation with us. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. We're back again next week at this same time. In the meantime, you can listen to all or part of today's program by going to totallyiowa.com and clicking on the radio programs link. We're also found on all the major podcast distributors, 19 now in all. The Iowa Business Report is presented by Advance Iowa, providing business solutions and support to small and medium-sized businesses. Let's work together. More at AdvanceIowa.com and search for Advance Iowa on LinkedIn and Facebook. We welcome your comments. Send them by email to radio at totallyiowa.com. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a prosperous week. The Iowa Business Report is a copyrighted production of Totally Iowa Media, which is solely responsible for its content. For more, click on the radio programs button at totallyiowa.com.